0: Today, The History Guy tells two stories of American political assassinations at the turn of the 19th century. First, he talks about the only assassination of a sitting U.S. governor. Then he talks about the former governor killed by dynamite. While they happened in different parts of the country, together, they illustrate some of the biggest political battles of the time, and the lengths that some went to get their way. Without further ado, let me introduce The History Guy.
1: As a successful attorney and kentucky state senator william gobel took on the interests of the powerful railroads and the wealthy elite of the gilded age but along the way he made enemies the political career and assassination of william Goebel, still the only sitting u.s governor ever to be assassinated is history that deserves to be remembered william justice Goebel was born in 1856 to german immigrant parents in pennsylvania His father served in the Civil War on the Union side, leaving his mother at home with four children. She taught them about their German heritage. William spoke only German until age six. His father was discharged from the Army in 1863 and moved the family to Covington, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. William eventually decided to become an attorney and apprentice with former Kentucky Governor John Stevenson from age 15 to 21. He graduated from Cincinnati Law School in 1877. He eventually became Stevenson's partner in his law practice. Stevenson was chief counsel to Kentucky Central Railroad, and Goebbel became an expert in contracts, corporations, and railroads. He went into his own law practice to address alleged abuse by the railroads and negligence in the courts. Many overworked, injured railroad employees and widows came to him for help. Settlements were large, and he became quite rich. Goble also defended railroad employees arrested in the 1894 Pullman Strike, he didn't charge a fee, he became hailed as the railroad lawyer and the poor man's lawyer. In 1887, Kentucky State Senator James Bryan decided to resign his seat and run for lieutenant governor. Goebbels decided to run for the seat because it represented Covington. He ran on a platform of railroad regulation and support for organized labor. With a popular platform and the support of Stevenson, Goebel assumed that his election would be easy, but ran into problems because the Union Labor Party was running on a similar platform and appealing to both Democrats and Republicans. Goebel ran as a Democrat, won by just 56 votes. He came to a Kentucky Democratic Party that was on hard times. Republicans had come to the state to break white rule during Reconstruction. The economy was poor, workers' wages were low, farmers were in debt, and taxes were high. Goebel was not a Southerner. His family had fought for the Union. He was not the typical Kentucky Democrat. He believed in civil rights for blacks and women, and he added a populist agenda. There were only two years left on the term Goebel was serving, so Goebel had to make a name for himself quickly. His first bill reduced the tolls on Covington Roads owned by a corporation, favored more regulation and reforms. Voters loved him, but he made the ex-Confederate ruling class angry. He served on a committee to investigate lobbying by the railroad industry. Its lobbyists had attempted to get the legislature to abolish the Kentucky Railroad Commission. Goebbels' committee uncovered abuses by lobbyists, such as giving free passes, money, food, whiskey, to legislatures. He helped defeat the bill to abolish the commission, became quite popular in his district, and easily won re-election in 1889 and 1893. In 1890, he served on the committee drafting the new Kentucky Constitution. ...secured a passage put in the Railroad Commission in the Constitution... ...and thus insulating it from the legislature and attempts to abolish it. But Goebel made enemies in the process, and that nearly cost him his political career. The Kentucky Constitution included a clause banning anyone who had participated in a duel from holding office... ...a leftover from its days as a western frontier state that had a dueling problem. It also required public officials to swear an oath that they would not fight any duels. Goebel nearly ran afoul of this clause... In 1895, John Leathers Sanford, a former Confederate colonel turned banker, was widely believed to have cost Goebel an appointment to Kentucky's highest court, in retaliation for Goebel leading legislation, to lower the tolls in Covington, costing Sanford a lot of money. Goebel wrote an article in a newspaper calling him Gonorrhea John. Sanford was angered when Goebel led a group opposed to increases in the tolls on the bridge between Covington and Cincinnati, one of his investments. And the last straw was when Goebel transferred three accounts from Sanford's bank to another. Sanford was heard saying he was going to kill Goebel, or be killed. On a trip to the bank in Covington, Goebel and his colleague were stopped by Sanford. While talking, Sanford kept his hand on his pistol in his pocket. Goebel held onto his pistol. Sanford asked Goebel if he wrote the article, and he said he had. Both men fired at each other, but witnesses were not sure who fired first. Goebel had turned at the last moment, and Sanford's shot went through Goebel's clothes, or, as the Cincinnati Inquirer explained, passed through his coattails, trousers, and underclothing without drawing blood. Sanford was shot in the head, just above the right eye. He died five hours later. Goebel turned himself into police and was investigated for murder. He pled self defense. The coroner's inquest agreed. It was a stroke of good luck. Had he been convicted of participating in a duel, he would have been banned from holding public office. In 1899, Goebel received the Democratic nomination for governor. During the election, he campaigned against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad and talked about his opponent, incumbent William Taylor, and his cozy relationship with the railroad. Goebel asked crowds if they wanted the railroad to be the master or the servant of the people. In 1904, the chairman of the railroad admitted that they spent $900,000 to attempt to defeat Goebel. On November 7th, 1899, Taylor beat Goebel by a narrow margin of just 2,383 votes. Goebel was gracious in defeat, but his supporters were not. Democrats in some counties began making accusations of voting problems and Goebel was persuaded to ask for a recount. Under the Kentucky Constitution, contested elections were to be decided by a contest committee made up of 11 members of the legislature. The committee, drawn by lot, included more Democrats and favored Goebel. Taylor sent for supporters to come to Frankfort, and thousands of armed mountain men from eastern Kentucky answered his call to intimidate his opponents in order to take the election in his favor. The Louisville Courier General declared, Armed mob of mountaineers invade Frankfort to bully the legislature. On the clear and cold morning of January 30th, 1900, Goebel walked to the old state capitol in Frankfort, despite having been warned of an assassination attempt. He had two bodyguards with him, including Captain E. Lillard, warden of the state penitentiary. As they reached the state house gate, a shot rang out. Goebel uttered an involuntary exclamation of pain and attempted to draw his revolver, but his strength failed him and he sank to the sidewalk. Several more shots followed, but no one else was wounded. Goebel was carried two blocks to the Capitol Hotel, where a doctor, E.E. E. Hume, had an office. The doctor immediately recognized that the bullet wound, which had entered above the right breast and punctured a lung before exiting next to the spine, was mortal. Goebbel was taken to a room on the second floor of the hotel. The shots were fired from the direction of a three story building in which a number of state officials, including Governor Taylor and Secretary of State Caleb Powers, had offices. When Taylor was told of the event, he seemed to be horrified and decried the assassination attempt. But as Goebbels supporters started to come to Frankfurt, he called out the state militia in order to preserve order. The militia formed so quickly that some people were suspicious, thinking that he'd already planned to call the militia for some unknown purpose. The state teetered on the brink of a civil war for several days. The Democratic majority in the legislature tried to meet, but Taylor had them forcibly dispersed. Taylor then ordered a meeting of the Assembly himself, but called them to London, Kentucky, a Republican-dominated area. The Republican minority came while the Democrats did not, resulting in the Republicans not having a quorum. Taylor tried to keep the contest committee from meeting, but they managed to outwit him and meet in secret. On January 31st, the contest committee declared the injured Goebel the winner. The Republican minority was angered, as were voters in Republican districts. Taylor remained defiant. Goebel was sworn in as his governor from his sickbed. Knowing that Goebel was not long for this world, his lieutenant governor, J.C.W. Beckham, was also sworn in. Goebel's first order was to disband the militia called up by Taylor. The call was ignored by the Republican commander of the militia. Beckham, as acting governor, then replaced the adjutant general of the militia with one of Goebel's men who formed another militia. For a while, Kentucky had two governors, two lieutenant governors, two adjutant generals, two militias, and two legislatures, all continuing to do business as if the others didn't exist. Taylor remained defiant. He tried to draft bank vouchers to pay his militia, but the president of the bank refused the payment. He pardoned a prisoner in the state penitentiary, but the warden, who had been with Goebel when he was shot, refused to free the prisoner. Taylor continued to use his militia to forcibly prevent the legislature from meeting. When a judge sent an order restraining him from doing so, he had his soldiers arrest the man serving the order. Goebel died from the gunshot wound on February 3rd, 1900. Journalists said his last words were, Tell my friends to be brave, fearless, and loyal to the common people. His lieutenant governor, Beckham, was sworn in, but the standoff with Taylor continued. With Goebel dead, Democrats and Republicans tried to negotiate a compromise on the election. Democrats would get the governorship for Beckham, Republicans would remove the militia from Frankfurt, and Democrats would give immunity to any Republican official involved in the assassination. Taylor, however, did not want to leave office and refused to recognize the agreement, turning to the courts. When a warrant was issued for the arrest of Caleb Powers, Taylor's Secretary of State, for the assassination, Taylor protected him, instructing the militia to block him from being arrested. Powers managed to escape Frankfurt wearing a disguise, trying to get to a Republican area, but was caught by the sheriff in Lexington. Ultimately, the Kentucky Court of Appeals said the legislature acted legally in declaring Goebbels the winner. Taylor uh, Taylor appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, who refused to hear the case, allowing the Court of Appeals' decision to stand. Out of legal options, Taylor stepped down, and J.C.W. Beckham became governor. Sixteen people, including Taylor, were indicted in the eventual case about the assassination. Taylor fled to Indianapolis. The Indiana governor refused to extradite him, so he was never questioned about the case by Kentucky authorities. Three of the men accused made deals to testify for the state in exchange for immunity. Five went to trial, and two were acquitted. Caleb Powers was convicted, along with Harry Utze and Jim Howard prosecutor said Powers was the mastermind, Utsi was the intermediary, and Howard was the assassin. The trials were highly irregular. All three judges were pro-Global Democrats, and the jury pool was light on Republicans. Republican appeals courts overturned the convictions of Powers and Howard. Powers was tried three more times with two convictions and a hung jury. Howard was also tried and convicted again. Utzi was sentenced to life in prison and did not appeal it. After two years in prison, he became a witness for the state. In Howard's second trial, he testified that Taylor had conspired with Utzi and Howard. He admitted that he acted as an intermediary and supported the prosecution's theory that Taylor and Powers were the masterminds and Howard the assassin. Despite the three men spending some time in prison for the crime, the assassination of Goebel has never been conclusively solved, and most historians think that the identity of the assassin and any plotters will likely never be discovered. After serving eight years in prison in 1908, Howard and Powers were pardoned by Beckham's successor, Augustus Wilson. Powers went on to be elected to two terms in the United States House of Representatives. Utzi was paroled in 1916 and pardoned in 1919. Taylor was also pardoned by Wilson, but he rarely returned to Kentucky and became a successful lawyer in Indiana. Goble was an unlikely politician in Kentucky. He wasn't even a native, wasn't part of the traditional power structure of the Gilded Age. He didn't give rousing speeches, he excelled at working behind the scenes to get his agenda passed. He took on powerful railroads and corporations in his home state. And while he wasn't part of the ex Confederate ruling class, his populist agenda attracted voters. He remains the only sitting governor in US history to be assassinated a victim of the powerful wealthy of the Gilded Age.
0: Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the History Guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. And we'd like to welcome Betty Jo, my grandmother and the History Guy's mom, back to the podcast. You know, this this is an amazing story. As, I mean, as all the stories we look at, we always pick great ones, but this pair of stories that we're looking at today is, is wild, especially because it's just, it's almost totally forgotten. This is a period of history that uh, I think a lot of people, you know, it gets glossed over in the history books. We, I think people understand that there was labor unrest in the United States, but to the level of what happened, say, here in Idaho, uh, th- this is a former, you know, a retired governor, and he's assassinated with, dynamite. And I it's I don't know when people are told about this, anything like it. It's not brought up in most of the most of the uh, when you talk about, you know, issues with labor, they don't talk about the time that this former governor was blown up by a booby trap uh, because of
1: his opposition to labor. Uh, you know part of the fun of being the history guy uh, is that you know you get to learn about I mean I, I have degrees in history I never heard any of them I, I did not hear either of these ever mentioned in any history class that I ever took uh, and they really do represent the era uh-huh. it's not that these, these are just you know odd events they are they're both just crazy stories it's yeah. crazy what's going on in these states and and uh, but uh, that the, these were these did really represent the big challenges of the time largely at this time a populist challenge a challenge of labor uh, and uh, a lot of the development of the West. Uh, so it's because you know we we like to talk about the Wild West. We think about you know the Earps or, or or the Indian Wars or whatever. And really, it was a lot of it had to do with these labor yeah. struggles. Uh, and uh, and really, you know, what did what did that mean? The people that were populating the West thought differently than the people in the East and they were more populist. They were uh, more egalitarian. Uh, people had gone West to escape the structures and that led to these challenges. Uh, of course, you don't have a mind if you don't have a rich person to build the mine, but uh, you don't have a mind if you don't have poor people to mine the mine and that always led to conflict. But they're also just, they're crazy. Both these stories are just, they're yeah. whack. They're out of control. Something's wrong with people. Uh, and so I think that, that there, part of the lesson here is you know if we think uh, if you hear people today they'll think america is more divided than it's ever been uh it it might be more divided than most people's memory i mean i guess that that depends because i think we sometimes kind of forget what the 1970s were like but uh uh, certainly it is not more divided than it's ever been (laughs) it's not more divided than the civil war but it's really i mean this turn of the century it's a gilded age is coming along and and, uh, the these this kind of conflict uh, we just you, you couldn't imagine that today. You could not imagine today in a contested election that someone's yeah. answer would be lean out the window and shoot the guy. Right. I mean, that's it's it's absolutely right? wild.
0: And these are the things that, I mean, this would be big, big news today if, if any of this happened. I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about straight up terrorism and in, and in, in, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, two governors, two legislatures, two militias, two militia captains, or two, 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 and and uh, uh, you know that's that's insane. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't even uh, in all that we have today, and there's a lot today. There's contested elections today. Arizona was just you know still arguing over the yeah. Arizona election, still arguing over Georgia in the cycle before that. And you know, for all of that, you know, the answer was never that both of you raised up an armed militia no. and used it to literally keep the legislature from meeting.
2: But one of the other really interesting things is that. Uh, These are forgotten stories. We don't remember. We don't know anything about them. And today we know what happened three minutes ago. And so you always have to remember that communications has made all the difference in the world as far as how we react to things and how we see things. And in those days, I'm sure that they knew that things were split or that people didn't agree with each other. But just think about the whole concept is different because, because we have instant news.
1: Yeah, you didn't have a news cycle here. You didn't have twenty-four hour. You didn't have people looking at their cell phones, going, "Oh, what's true?" Going Just on? being on the other side. So, of, I mean, you it's know, true. The other
0: Side of the state would have would have made it a different experience. You would have been at a distance from it. And uh, today we would we'd have. Uh, we, I mean, we'd have people filming every piece of it. There'd be a witness, uh, you know, iPhone videos from every angle, and it's it's a very different.
1: It's true. <laughs> We would see it different. So maybe uh, division today affects the whole nation and the perception of the nation maybe faster than it, than it did then. But so I mean the the thing that, that we have these you know these two stories that are you know, a, a good distance yeah. apart between what Kentucky and Idaho, and they both did involve the, the you know the presidency and national politics at the time. Uh, but I mean that shows that uh, these still were representing national trends and national divisions. Uh, and both of these stories are going to end up you know tying to some of those same divisions though you know, in in different ways. but it is you know when we talk about it, I mean it's just amazing how can these be forgotten? because understanding this and understanding the nation survived this and understanding how the nation survived that might be meaningful in days when we have political division and disagreement and and elections that are uh, in dispute and and, uh, and uh, all the sorts of things that that led to these. It's interesting because in Lexington, there is a brass plaque on the ground that says this is where Goebbel was shot. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder how many people walk over that plaque and have no idea who William Goebel is, more or less outside of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, well, and, and
2: I wonder if in Kentucky, do you suppose if you're in a duel today, they can take you that you can't no longer be governor? You still can't run? Uh, I wonder how many of those laws still exist, because I thought that was really that is, funny, yeah. too.
1: If you're if you're in Kentucky and someone's going to run you don't like, challenge them to a duel. Yeah, apparently, if you That's get them bad. to fight a duel, they, they, uh, they're ineligible. But I guess- I mean, we talk right now. You will have candidates on both sides, where the other side has said, "You, they love that guy so much that he could literally yeah. shoot someone dead in the street, and they would still vote for him." That literally <laughs> happened. In Kentucky. He literally shot the guy in the face <laughs> and then <laughs> ran for gun. Yeah, that one. Uh, that's I mean, it's it's shocking
0: because you hear that and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" He, I mean, he shot a dude. I mean, in public. Uh, I I don't know how you you think it would make yeah, it the, difficult. The big question was:
1: Was it a duel? <laughs> that was the real question. There was: they, Was it a duel? That was that they was. Didn't what they didn't really about. care if the guy
0: died. I. It would be an interesting. It's it would a, be an interesting. Uh, <laughs> of course, we don't. You know, we don't generally. I mean, they 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 were. Kentucky was not exactly the uh, the frontier exact at, at that point, but uh more so maybe than you know New York, but
1: yeah, more so. Yeah, I mean, let's yeah, say it's a mountaineering yeah. state. I think. Least, I mean, it was certainly were a little bit. More rough and ready yeah. in the nation, and you know, at the turn of the century there. But and you know, he he got shot right through his oh underwear God, too. Yeah. I mean, you have, to, you have to appreciate how lucky he was that this guy was able to shoot in a way that literally pierced his underwear and didn't you know, yeah, didn't drop. Yeah, blood. he managed to, yeah. and I mean, they were they were close. I. I they had to have been by. They had to have been standing right, right next to each other. But and you know, ang- angry words turned to gunfire. That's 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 never a good no. thing. But I mean, it's not something we would expect of someone that's you know, running for governor no. It would be it today. would be
0: uh, yeah. pretty crazy for for someone who was you know running for governor for a, for a political person to literally get in a gunfight. Although also you know I think that today we we kind of view view that a little differently. Uh, it's it's a we, you know now we've got we've got it's a very different that's world true.
1: than it used to be. It is, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about the Hamilton yep. duel, and I you mean, know, that's yeah, things. Things have just kind of changed with time. So uh, we, we, I guess, less frequently deal with our political issues via gunfire. It's not like it's completely. No. <laughs> oh, it's, it's still a
0: political, <laughs> but it's maybe not the same political issue that it used to be this may be not the same yes
1: they're probably not shooting literally out of the window of the governor's office that's that's, yeah that one we don't know that it might have been from the secretary of state's office we're not sure which window that's something we
0: might know today just because we would we would have some video where you could see maybe see the shot coming through
1: or something that that's true yeah so they would have a clear idea of who it was that was shooting at each other there from the in front of the, the the captain of the prison and yeah, uh, you know this is uh, this story. It's it's kind of crazy for out, but it's really interesting uh, uh, because uh, Gobel was you know he was such a political outsider. Uh, he was challenging the traditional yeah. structures. He was uh, presenting himself as a hero of the common man, uh, and that's you know you always see that. I mean, those sort of populists always rise, and you see them in all sorts of, of eras of history. Yeah. And you know, whenever you challenge the status quo, then there's going to be some kickback. Uh, and it's interesting where they both found uh, their. Uh, their support base. And you, you can laugh certainly about the politics of it. When you, know, when you question an election, when he when, when decided for a recount, they didn't actually go recount the votes. Uh, they just by lot drew 11 members of the Kentucky State House. And then they decided, and obviously they were going to decide based on their politics. Yeah. So you, then you're just wondering who's who's drawing the right straws. I mean that that's all around bizarre. Uh and, but, and the story that he's the only, you know, uh sitting US governor to have been assassinated, of course, is very stories that he wasn't actually a governor when he was shot. He was only a governor but he was a governor by the time that he died. Yeah. Uh is really, I mean this is this is this whole story is is crazy. And it's crazy that politics could get so acrimonious yeah. that it would come to the point that you're both, you know, you're both your armed militias are are facing each other. Uh and and yet, you know, uh uh despite all of that, I mean, the only violence that occurred was this assassination. Yeah. I mean, you know, it didn't erupt into into. Gosh, you, you uh, sure into, think it could have? And I mean, these were
0: you know, you want to talk about partisanship? Have, yeah. uh, it would be it would be crazy if 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 you know one one candidate in say a governor a gubernatorial a candidate in the state you know calls in the the uh, Democratic militia and the, the Republican militia yeah. is, a, is a different entity. That's uh, it's it doesn't yeah, quite two, work and, like and, that. And your name.
1: And you got you know you got different judges yeah. and you got I mean they're all but and and they're so I mean there there really could have been a civil civil war here, oh, yeah. uh, and
2: I just love the fact that we had two legislatures we had two governors we had two everything, uh, uh, which is just absolutely uh, just think about what that must have been like and who followed who, right whose orders and so forth
0: I
1: know yeah what if you had a you know pay <laughs> How your taxes? you know the, the <laughs> who, bank who,
0: the bank guy uh, the bank president says oh I'm not gonna I'm not going to not going to the, the the check, check to pay the I mean, he to make, He's got to make, <laughs> a, that, make a decision on that. And the,
1: the captain of the prison doesn't accept the pardon. And, and so, you so I mean, yeah, you've, you've divided up the the offices by, you know, who's taken what side. And it's kind of hard to see in this whole story here if there was any truly neutral party. Yeah.
0: No, everyone seemed uh, to you be. You know,
1: the, I mean, it's not like they go to some court or something like that where someone's saying we're going to try to easily adjudicate this based on the law. I mean, they're all, I mean, it was no question when you selected your legislators by lot what they were going to vote regardless of what the what the vote count was Uh, and 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 the way to prevent that was to literally use the you know armed people to try to to keep keep them from meeting from meeting and voting you know yeah you uh, can uh,
0: see how that felt like a i mean it feels like a, a system that's really rife for abuse where where you know if you're like oh well i lost the election well you know i'll just all i have to do is ask for a recount and apparently that's enough. Yes, to, and, and, and then hopefully my guys will we'll get know, more will be on the that that, I mean that's crazy, out. and that's, I mean that's By certainly lot, not the yeah. first time. You know, all all the time you'll have places where throughout American history, and honestly throughout world history, where you know there's a position where. <laughs> Uh, there's a committee of five people or whatever and it all comes down to Mm -hmm. which
1: side gets more people yeah making making that decision though i mean to be fair it doesn't sound like gobel was really trying to game the system it sounds like he was he was convinced that there was the election irregularities gosh what does that sound like (laughs) oh my goodness we've got some Uh, the other guy was sure he had been elected it was a very narrow election gosh we never see anything like that happen these days uh, so I mean it is uh, it is important because we just not told the yeah. story, which I don't I don't know why. Uh, it is important because it says that this nation has faced more division than we have today and we managed to come through that Uh, it is important certainly as a lesson to learn I mean probably the best way to solve things is not to raise two militias and try to see you know who's got the most guns you know there's there's a lot of but it also is as it's a it's a ripping historical yarn it is I mean it is a drama of all sorts to see what's going on throughout you know and and, uh, prison escape I mean I you can look at the best plots that we see on television shows and they really aren't as crazy as this one this, many things happen. So you're like, how could, how could that happen? Why, why would that continue happening? Uh, and uh, I mean, it's one of these things that would be hard to write as a yeah. story today because people might not necessarily believe. Yeah, it. that we, we could really. Uh, and, they, you know, and they shoot him, and before he bleeds to death, they make him governor. Justin, you know, just which at that point, you know, I mean,
0: it sounds like they knew that the the wound was you know was mortal. Was uh, mortal. Pretty, I mean, when yeah. they were, they weren't doing that, thinking, "Oh, maybe he'll recover." It didn't seem like that was. It <laughs> seems like everyone thought that that was unlikely. Uh, but uh, you know, they're making a point of. Oh, oh, and I'm not sure exactly what point they're making, except that you know, how dare you shoot our guy in the in public?
1: But <laughs> well, uh, maybe the point was we want, the, we don't want the guy who shot him to be <laughs> I governor, guess that's fair, by, right? You still by want virtue to, of shooting the opponent yeah. a... <laughs>
2: or or maybe he was a dead man walking, huh?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and he, you know, I guess to an extent, uh, uh, he sacrificed his life in order to come to uh, a, a conclusion uh, on this on this, uh, uh, you know, uh, the stormfront that they had run yeah. into. You know, this
0: it does show just how I mean how national these these labor issues were because you know mm-hmm. the two stories we talk about today are about two very different industries uh, that were in you know very mm-hmm. different locations, but they they were fairly similar in terms of you know what the the actual like foundational argument was about and the fact that Mm -hmm. you know this is a guy who was he was not a typical politician and he was able to make a name for himself you know essentially in politics by picking the side he picked as a lawyer
1: yeah, absolutely. It's a, I mean, the, labor was the really the biggest issue of the day, especially as things grew in the West. And uh, you know, uh, Goebel was standing for uh, railroad men and railroad rights. And that's that's what got him there. Uh, and you do you do have to wonder, because we'll talk about Sternenberg in a, in, a, in a moment here. You have to wonder, you know, if uh, if he had been governor, uh, would he have having to work with all those diverse yeah. state interests been able to maintain uh, that degree of loyalty, because Sternenberg is going to find out in a bit that it's it's kind of yeah. hard to stay on on one side versus another. So I mean, to an extent, uh, you know, Gobel maybe couldn't have been anything but a martyr. I'm not I'm not saying it was a good thing he was shot or anything like that. I'm saying that maybe uh, his political path was set, yeah. uh, and maybe that shows in the fact that you know he'd had the violence before in terms of the you know the. Uh, the the shooting match between he and a rival. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, it, it seems like he was on a path kind of from the start and that's where the path ended up. If you support the history guy and would like to find more
0: of our content, well, the, one of the best ways to do that is to go to the history guy.com. Uh, that website has all of our content. That's going to have our podcasts our videos. Mm-hmm. It also in, as our, catalog has grown <laughs> it's got a very nice way of being able to kind of look through the, the many different things we have done and find mm-hmm. how some of them are connected in different eras and different stuff like that which can be a little harder on youtube when all we really have are you know playlists
1: yeah so it's a, if you want to say search by topic or search by source or you know the name it's a much easier way to do it it's an easier way to get to all of our content rather than waiting to see what uh, youtube is going to recommend uh it's a good place you can go to buy our yeah. t-shirts or make a contribution to The History Guy, if you want to. Uh, And all sorts of content there. And so easy, it's thehistoryguy.com.
0: Next up, The History Guy talks about the assassination of former Idaho Governor Stunenberg.
1: 112 years ago today, on December 30th, 1905, retired former Idaho Governor Frank Stunenberg went for a walk around his neighborhood in Caldwell, Idaho, through nearly 10 inches of December snow. As he strolled that frigid December morning, you can imagine that like millions of others, that he was thinking about the possibilities for the new year. When he returned home, he opened the side gate to his yard, and it exploded. While he was gone, someone had rigged the gate with several sticks of dynamite. Blown nearly 10 feet in the air, the governor was grievously injured and died in his home later that day. The assassination of Frank Stunenberg made national headlines in its day, and the trial that followed, a national sensation, included some of the most famous advocates of the day, arguing over one of the most contentious issues facing the young nation. It is a story of the wildest part of the Wild West, and a part of the nation's history that many people would rather forget. And yet this now nearly forgotten political assassination deserves to be remembered. As much as we think of the West in terms of cowboys and Indians, outlaws and lawmen, and settlers crossing the nation in their covered wagons, the history of development in the American West was actually largely driven by minerals. The discovery of gold in California in 1849, the famed Gold Rush, drove the westward expansion and the overall development of the United States perhaps more than any other single event. The California Gold Rush was followed by many more, from the Black Hills of South Dakota, to Tombstone, Arizona, to the Alaskan Klondike. Many U.S. western states, including Nevada, Colorado, Idaho, Arizona, Montana, North and South Dakota, and Alaska were originally settled not by farmers, but by miners and prospectors. And while many of those miners headed west hoping to strike their fortune, the vast majority ended up working in a profession that was dangerous, grueling, and where power was concentrated in the hands of the mine owners. Attempts to unionize labor in the American mining industry began as early as the 1860s although early attempts tended to be short-lived responses to specific complaints. In response, mine owners formed mine owners associations intended to protect the interests of the mining companies. A seminal event in the escalating conflict was a labor strike in Cordelline, Idaho in 1892. The central labor complaint had to do with automation replacing miners and reducing wages, but the situation escalated when it was discovered that the Mine Owners Association had infiltrated the miners' union with a detective, allowing the mine owners to outmaneuver many of the union's plans. The use of these so-called labor spies, in this case a detective from the famous Pinkerton agency named Charlie Siringo, was a particular bone of contention. The discovery of the labor spy led to a violent confrontation with striking miners exchanging gunfire with mine guards and replacement workers called strike breakers. Three people were killed and 17 injured in the violence. In response, Idaho governor Norman Bushnell Wiley declared martial law, deploying both troops of the Idaho National Guard and later federal troops. Many Union members were confined without formal charges in the four months of martial law. The heavy-handed response resulted in the formation of a new, better organized and more militant Union organization called the Western Federation of Miners. The WFM would then play a central role in the many violent mining labor disputes in the United States and Canada in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries. The WFM led strikes in Cripple Creek, Colorado in 1894, and Leadville, Colorado in 1896, both of which resulted in the deployment of the Colorado National Guard. While the former was largely successful in achieving its goals, the latter was not, and resulted in an evolution into a smaller, more radically socialist, and more violent WFM. This would set the stage for another labor dispute in Coeur in 1899. In 1896, Idaho had elected a new governor, a former newspaper editor named Frank Stunenberg, The 36-year-old Stunenberg had won the nomination for both the Democratic and the Populist Party, and had won the election on the back of significant union support. He was the first Idaho governor who was not a Republican, and mining company fears that he would not support them in a labor dispute was enough to cause them to raise wages. He easily won election to another two-year term in 1898. But trouble flared in 1899. The Western Federation of Miners was having a dispute with two mining operations that chose to pay a lower wage and operate only with non-union miners. The WFM perceived these two mining operations to be a threat to their wage scale. On April 29th, 1899, union members from the WFM used nearly 3,000 pounds of dynamite to destroy a mill belonging to the Bunker Hill mine. So much dynamite was needed that the union men commandeered a train at gunpoint to move it all. The mill contained a huge concentrator used to refine ore into silver. In the blast, the WFM destroyed the most expensive piece of mining equipment in the United States, worth more than a quarter million dollars at the time. The local sheriff supported the union and did nothing to prevent the violence. Shocked by the extent of the damage and the lawlessness, Stunenberg appealed to President William McKinley for federal troops, declaring Soshona County, where the event had occurred, to be in a state of insurrection and rebellion. Once again, martial law was declared. The response was heavy-handed, including indiscriminate arrests, where hundreds of men were herded into so-called bullpens, without trial or the right of habeas corpus. Some were held in inhuman conditions for as much as a year. Politicians sympathetic to the Union cause were arrested, newspapers critical of the federal response were closed down, the power of the WFM in the area was broken. One of the Union supporters was convicted of murder and the death of one of the Bunker Hill employees, and several were convicted of the federal crime of interfering with the mail for the abduction of the train used to carry the dynamite. For his action declaring martial law, Stunenberg was seen as a traitor by the unions that had helped to elect him. He did not seek re-election in 1900, but enmity against him clearly remained. Five years later, when he was killed by the booby trap on his gate, the WFM immediately fell under suspicion in the assassination. Two days after the explosion, January 1st, 1906, a suspect was arrested. The man, named Harry Orchard, had been staying at a local hotel. A waitress reported that he had acted suspiciously on the day of the bombing. A search of his hotel room found further evidence that he had made the bomb. The lead investigator, a famous Pinkerton detective named James McParland, convinced Orchard that he would be better off if he became a witness for the state. Orchard then told an astounding tale. Not only had he killed Governor Stunenberg, but he admitted to 17 other murders, all at the behest, he claimed, of the leadership of the Western Federation of Miners. The trial of WFM leader Big Bill Haywood, held in 1907, was one of the most dramatized of the day, called by the press the greatest trial of modern time. One question regarding the mine leader's arrest in Colorado went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The prosecution included future U.S. Senator William Borah, and the WFM leaders were represented by the legendary attorney Clarence Darrow. After nearly a three month trial, Haywood was acquitted, largely because Orchard's testimony could not be corroborated. In the end, only Harry Orchard was convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. The trials of the three WFM leaders in the assassination of Frank Stenenberg ended up being sort of a watershed in the American labor movement. While the trials themselves offered plenty of drama and there were accusations of misconduct on both sides, they ended up being sort of trials on the idea of organized labor in the United States, and the acquittals represented not just the fact that the jurors could objectively appreciate facts, but also showed the growing sympathy for the populist movement in the western United States. Still there are many who argued that the jurors were intimidated, that they were afraid that their families would face violence if they convicted, and to this day there's still disagreement over whether the WFM was involved in Stunenberg's murder. Ironically, the acquittals might have represented sort of a death knell for the radical tactics of the WFM. Exhausted after years of violent confrontations, including the notorious Colorado Labor Wars in 1903 and 1904, labor had soured on violent tactics, and the acquittals themselves showed that labor members could get fair trials in the United States, which itself undercut much of the rationalization that was used to justify those violent tactics in embracing more radical socialism had alienated many of the former allies of the WFM, and so by the 1910s the Western Federation of Miners had lost its position as a leading voice in the labor movement in the western United States. In 1916 they changed their name to the International Union of Mine, Mill and Smelter Workers, and enjoyed a brief resurgence in the 1930s and 1940s, but their association with socialism cost them during the Red Scare of the 1950s, and finally with declining influence they merged with the Steelworkers Union in 1967. Harry Orchard was sentenced to life in prison for the murder, and died in the Idaho State Penitentiary in 1954, at the age of 88. He maintained throughout his life that his confession, and implication of the WFM leadership, was true. Big Bill Haywood's fame in the labor movement grew after his acquittal. He eventually split with the WFM, as the union moved away from more radical socialism, and aligned himself with the industrial workers of the world, which he had helped to found. In 1918, he and over a hundred other members of the IWW were arrested under the Espionage Act, for instigating a labor strike during wartime. Facing up to 30 years in prison, he skipped bail and fled to Russia, where he became an ally of the Bolsheviks. He died in Russia in 1928. The once trial of the century has largely faded from the national memory, as has the period of violent labor confrontations at the turn of the 20th century. And yet that period, when violence was common on both sides, represented significant changes in American culture and law and established the industrial labor movement in the United States. And for that reason alone, that assassination of Frank Stenberg on a frigid December morning in 1905 deserves to be remembered.
0: I feel like in this episode, as you're telling the story, the, the intro is so shocking. Cause it's just this guy walking <laughs> around. He's going for a walk,
1: and then he gets blown up by dynamite—a booby trap of dynamite that was set up while he oh was gone. That's pretty harsh for someone to put several sticks of dynamite in your garden fence. While you, well, I mean, it, it does start out quite startling because he's out taking a walk yeah. when there's ten inches of dynamite. Oh my God, true. What a choice? Wrong. The real lesson on both of these is don't go for a walk because that's when it's it, when they that's get when you. it. Goes bad, but. Yeah, he goes out for a walk in 10 inches of snow. The worst that you think he's going to get pneumonia or something like that. He opens the gate and he's blown in the air. So, yes, this was uh, this was a political assassination and it was uh, done to make a statement. And uh, uh, boy, it did. So, I mean, again, if we want to talk about how divisive things are, very little, uh, a small percentage of our politics today uh, deal with dynamite, whereas this particular episode has quite quite a shocking amount. Of dynamite more sticks than should be necessary to kill one guy and more sticks than should be necessary to make a political yeah, this, point This certainly vault. was not them just trying. I mean, man if, they,
0: if you're gonna kill a guy there are ways to do it that are a little less dramatic, right? This is this was this was a statement and the, <laughs> and it was a very clear statement I think that you know you use dynamite as a, a as an assassin from the the mining union you're, Ten, you're, ten well, foot yeah. in the air. Yeah, yes. you're, you're making it very clear well, like this it. was us.
1: Allegedly, because you know the actually, union always always denied fair. it. Maybe he was just a crazy guy with, with sticks of dynamite for some reason. <laughs> but uh, and and again, this is this was a, this is a former governor that was killed because of acts that he yeah. took as a governor. Uh, I never once heard a mention of this name never. Uh, in in getting a degree in United States history, uh, and it's I mean it's a very I think unknown event. But it did represent uh, not just uh, the politics of the time. I mean, when we talk about the labor unrest of the time, there's a lot of things that people yeah. talk about, including the mine wars in Colorado. But it represent maybe the apex of those wars yeah. uh, because it really was the events around the Stunenberg assassination uh, that would kind of change the trajectory of labor and kind of represent the end of that of that very volatile, very violent yeah. era of, of labor dispute where, you know, there were a lot of guns involved. Uh, and so I mean nothing. Nothing we talk about with labor today, even you know, even the you know the, the messiest disputes with labor today. Uh, I mean, you know, they don't involve you know having to hijack a train to carry all the dynamite. Oh my you're goodness! Use. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know? well,
0: and it's really it's it's hard to say exactly who was a good guy in this because uh, I can I can kind oh, of yeah. see I can kind of see where everyone was that. I mean, we kind of see how, you know, how it the is, union yeah. was radicalized, uh, where where they, you know, they feel like they don't have any support in the government and that their only their only choice is and you can see where, you know, when the federal the you know, federal troops come in to, to and you know, they're essentially only yeah. take it they're they're clearly taking
1: a side. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you can see why a pro-union governor would eventually have to call in troops so that, just because of the level of yeah. violence. You can see how the, the the union would see that as a betrayal. But you also see as soon as they got there, as soon as the, as the military got there, I mean, they're just randomly arresting yeah. people. They're just shutting them away in camps forever. I mean, you, you can see here how this all how this could spiral to to where it did. It's really and you know it's it's kind of interesting because the the real core of the dispute that ended up in all of this. Uh, really had to do, it's, it's kind of a, it's a weird detail sort of thing. So in, in Idaho there, there's wet mines and there's dry mines. And the the wet mines, people were literally working way, waist deep in cold water. Mm. And in the dry mines, uh, you were working out of the cold water. So that, that when you worked in the wet mines, they paid you more because you had to buy special equipment. Uh, these you know uh, overalls, uh, rubber overalls, I guess, to, to not freeze to death in the water. So the dry mines say we can pay less per day, but the miners still make more. But we would be not paying the minimum union wage, and so we had to use non-union miners. Uh, so that's an interesting that's an interesting discussion. You can see what one miner might say. I would be willing to take a little less pay if I don't have to buy the pans and stand in the water. Uh, and that was the dispute where the union saw that as as a chance at union busting because you're using non-union workers and breaking their wage agreements which they had fought for so hard uh, and that's where that's where the tension comes from but it seems like, I mean you can see like two sides yeah. of that story uh, and it does feel like a bit of an extreme response uh, to then blow up the most expensive piece of buying equipment in the United well, States. Well and, and
0: that's yeah. and you, I mean you want to talk about you know where in terms of you know who is on whose side they blow this place up and I mean they blow it into smithereens and like they, they don't <laughs> at, at first they essentially are saying we're not going to you know we're not going to do anything about that. Like it's we're we're yes. just gonna let them go. Well, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the sheriff was on yeah. their side, so he was. not ca- I mean, that's crazy. Could you could you imagine a sheriff today? What somebody goes and I mean they they turn
1: that thing into matchsticks <laughs> and and the sheriff yeah. refuses to arrest him. Well, and kill the yeah. person too. I mean kill the kill the, yeah and 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 then they're mad that the governor you know does yeah. something it's, about it. It's also interesting because we were in the midst of the Spanish American yeah. War. He couldn't call up the state militia because they were they were in the Philippines <laughs> fighting, <laughs> and so we had to send troops. I mean it's 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 crazy. About, I, I mean again this was you know this was just a really crazy. If we we're going to talk about division, imagine a time when what the labor decision dispute is well i disagree with you over way it's your mind so i'm going to literally blow your processing plant to match sticks with someone Seriously. inside there uh that's that's crazy. crazy yeah this one again it's crazy and then uh and then they become so mad over the response which to be fair feels awfully heavy-handed yeah. by the time they do it of course it's hard to call the army into a domestic dispute and have that be uh you know, have that be anything other than a fairly, you know, brutal response? Because you know, I mean, that's not what the army's built to do, right? But anyway, so they're so mad about that that after the guy retires, they wait till he goes out on a walk and they blow up his fence. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it's all around. A it's crazy wild story. how
0: deep these you know these. Uh loyalties and grudges i mean hell mm-hmm. is that this they this mm-hmm. i mean they, this was years after he was it was several years after he had retired and he was essentially out of the game mm-hmm. uh, you know it's he, was, he was, and yet it yeah. was a political assassination but they saw him as as betraying
1: yeah. the movement yeah it was clearly a political assassination based so it really was what he did as governor that led to that and it's interesting because he had been a I, you, you you imagine he didn't lose his sympathy for the union you just can't You can't let them just blow Uh, stuff up. I mean, if you let them do
0: that, I I, at some point there's just you know what's the where's the rule of law? But it's yeah, there's (laughs) got
1: to be so. I mean, it shocked even his conscience, and you know he felt he felt they had to move to the rule of law. And you know some of these things like now it's against the law. It would be a a, a significant violation of the law for the for the owners to infiltrate the union uh, with a with a spy. That's which is crazy stuff. uh,
0: Uh, Although I, I bet they still try to do some of that. Uh, although at least you know it would be against the law and you can see where these i mean you can you can really see where the mine owners who seem to have all the power and the money and stuff and who are admittedly at odds with the workers i mean that's that was that's been true mm-hmm. uh i mean throughout history but especially once you get into industrialization and stuff like that uh and in a, and you can see why that turned, why so much of that turned to you know these these uh, Bolshe, mm-hmm. bolsheviks. Well, and
1: down and, in, in Colorado, the experience had been, I mean, darn near civil yeah. war. The experience had literally been, you know, armed groups on both sides, and and then a lot of a uh, death. Uh, from union troops, you know yeah. massacres by uh, by militia and troops, uh, so you can see how they had radicalized oh, yeah. to that point. I mean, but it, it makes a difference here when we find out you know where Big Bill Haywood winds up. Yeah. You know that where it's a little different than we see today. I mean, these were there were people that were literally seeing this in the same way that the Bolsheviks were seeing it in Russia, uh, and they were they were seeing this as 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 a revolution. Yeah. And I think they would have been willing to call up the Red Guards just like like Russia was. So this was. This was kind of the apex of that. They'd had all the violence in Colorado uh, and uh, that had for some of them said, you know, violence is not working and for others it had radicalized them. And so that something like the dry mine pays less than the wet mine could lead to something as dramatic as Three thousand pounds of yeah. TNT and dynamite that then could lead to something as dramatic as killing a former yeah. governor who's out of the game with with dynamite. It's, it's all around crazy, and then of course it goes into uh, it goes into the whole trial story. The person in his orchard is is, is uh, he knows that he did it. He is he, but he's. He is claiming that they killed lots yeah. of people. It leads to another. It leads to another trial, and and uh, you know it's it's and all of that in the end comes down to it. Really takes the violence team out of the labor movement, moves it a different direction, so that we still have labor unrest. Uh, we still have you know significant yeah. labor unrest after this period, uh, but uh, it is moved away from the point where that is that is kind of armed con- camps in, in what is close to civil war, uh, and you know away from something that looks like yeah. a Bolshevik I, revolution. I like to think
0: we're a little more civilized now. Um, I, I, I hope prefer so. either yeah. way, you know, whether where your argument wants to be and whether things have gotten better or worse or whatever. Uh, I, I think in general we're in a better place when we can, you know, when a strike doesn't involve... Uh, armed (laughs) gunfights i I, in general the in general i mean we we
1: still we still see labor action obviously in america and and after the period of this we it's been regulated in so many Mm -hmm. ways that are intended to i mean the whole idea is that we learned how terrible it could be and it was intended to to serve both sides without it turning into uh the the you know massacres and things that we had uh Really much more violent. Our whole vision of what the Wild West looked like these times, you know, after the turn of the century, much more yeah. violent uh, than, uh, than you know, uh, Wyatt Earp whacking people in Dodge City and stuff like that uh, with his, you know, with the butt of his gun. Uh, so, I, I mean, it, it's just a period of uh, U.S. history. I mean, it's, it's interesting that we don't think of it as, in the same way that we think of, you know, other parts of U.S. history. I mean, how w- wild and woolly this yeah. was that you were, you know, you were using dynamite on the former governor. Uh, and... Uh, it 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 just says, again, you know, the lesson that we learned from all of that is that we can disagree and not have it turn into that sort of violence. So in an era when, uh, you know, it's not all that uncommon to have people in the street upset over things, uh, maybe the lesson we need to learn is go relearn the yeah. lessons of these forgotten events and say that, you know, we can be uh, very much divided as a nation. Uh, and yet we can come to solutions as a nation that, uh, that don't tear the nation apart because and we did that. We tried it, and it was it was we learned that it was you know worse.
2: and then one of these days we might find Jimmy Hoffa, who knows?
1: <laughs> he's not under, he's underneath the mine. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah you, you, even if you talk about the Hoffa era, I mean still, I mean, you know the dynamite wasn't usual usually. usually. Involved. I mean, <laughs> That's, I don't well, we have no I, I, idea as how as many, as far as we know. We have no idea how many assassinations were ordered by the by the by the uh, uh, unions. You know, yeah, in either be, era might but, be
0: the reason we can't find Hoffa.
1: Oh, maybe so sorry. Maybe, maybe, maybe dynamite. Maybe, maybe dynamite. <laughs> yeah. certainly,
0: you know, this it's this just... does come off as a. a the unions inside and this is I mean, this is true in other places too, where that you know, this this concentrated power could come off as I mean, this was almost organized crime, the the level of I mean,
1: it was essentially what they
0: were doing. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. And,
1: What's more organized yeah. crime than being able to call up your own yeah. militia? You know, I mean, so so yeah, so yeah. I mean, and you know, there's there's all sorts of accusations on both sides in labor disputes and stuff like that today. And sympathies for the nations shift back and forth between labor and management and all that sort of thing. Uh, and and you know, I think there there've always been arguments about connections uh, between unions and union yeah. busters and organized crime and and power and you know the rich versus the poor and the and the working man versus the uh, management and all the I mean, all those issues are still around yeah. today. Uh, well, but I mean, if if we think that those issues are, are crazy today, if we think those issues are radical today, if we think issues between populists and power base are radical today, uh, then honestly, we've we've not seen anything like that, uh, uh, like we've like what the nation has already survived. So, I, you know, my my, you know, I would say as a historian, and I usually just like to tell history and let people make their own decisions. But I would say one of the lessons we learned from this is don't be that, let's not do yeah. this again right? Let's not shoot from the windows of the courthouse. Let's, uh, let's not use dynamite on our enemies. Let's not blow things up as our, as our means of solution. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this, uh, realize that we can have differing opinions without tearing the nation apart, uh, because it does seem occasionally these days that people have forgotten those lessons, uh, and maybe that they should hear in class about, uh, William Goebel and, and, and Sternenberg and, and, uh, and you know what it means when we when we take our politics the wrong certainly
0: you know uh, the solutions we have are not always perfect and uh, you can see in places like this where the the solutions were imperfect that led us to where we got but you have to think that you know we're still better
1: off if we're not blowing each other up yeah I mean we, we learned lessons then we changed the way that we did things then if we have to learn lessons now that's fine but let's not learn in the same hard way that we did before
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.